We're going to be starting uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 6. Um, if you've got a church Bible, it's page 1708. And I actually started this a couple of months ago. So this is actually a third in a kind of long series uh, looking at the, what it means to put on the armor of God. And don't worry if you weren't here a month ago or two months ago, absolutely not a problem. It doesn't rely on you having heard the previous messages. If you want to turn to page 1708, um, I'm going to read uh, verse 10 to 20. We are, we, last time we did this, we looked at the first three pieces of armor. We looked at uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and what I called the gospel boots. Uh, and this time we're going to look at the, what it means to, put on the sh- uh, to take up sorry, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. So if you turn, I'm going to start with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give me the words to boldly proclaim the mystery of your gospel this evening. Would you help us to, to know what it means to put on this armor? to receive the gifts that you've given us. Show us um, more of what it means to uh, have our hope in you, to what it means to put uh, our trust in you, Lord. Help us to endure. Help us to continue to persevere, to follow you. You come and work in us by your spirit, Lord. We welcome you here. Welcome your presence amongst us. Just ask that you come and work in our lives and help us to be the people you've called us to be. Amen. Amen. So why is this armor so important to us? Why are we doing this? Why is the armor so important to us? Really, the the whole context of what Paul's saying here is really he's describing the reality of the Christian life as a battle. And of course, he starts off by describing this kind of cosmic battle that the Christian faces the enemy of Satan. And I won't go into that this week. We'll have to go back to the old messages. But he's basically describing the reality of the Christian life, that it will feel difficult sometimes. And I think we're going to, if you zero in on verse 16, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight, it talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. Saying this battle is not kind of over there and outside of us. Actually, it's a battle that we all experience. What does he mean by these flaming darts of the evil one? Well, partly, you have to understand who the evil one is, talking about Satan, saying that you've got to understand that he's, he's a tempter, He's one who seeks to uh, lie to you, to draw you away from obedience to God, so to, to tempt you into sin, essentially, just as he did right at the beginning in the, in the Garden of Eden, um, where he kind of causing uh, Eve to question uh, what God has said. Um, and then later on, um, how he, tempts Je- he seeks to tempt Jesus to disobey the Father. So part of those arrows is temptation, part of it is a- accusation. What do we mean by that? It's a, uh, the way that Satan would seek to uh, lead believers to... Uh, feel condemned, feel ashamed, feel guilty and separate from God. And in a sense that which the point where they might just end up saying, look, I just give up. I just feel like I can't do the Christian life. But it's likely that he's also describing to um, what we describe as trials. What we mean by that is really suffering, the difficult things of life. In verse uh, 16, when you use the word fiery darts, it's eerily reminiscent of uh, another phrase which is used in uh, Peter's letter, uh, in, the gospel, in, in the New Testament, when he talks about fiery trials. 
It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that phrase, fiery trial, really speaks of a kind of very difficult situation in life. What he's saying is that, look, ultimately, Satan can be behind the suffering that we encounter in our lives. That doesn't mean that Satan is behind all suffering, but consider the example of Job in the Old Testament, how basically he seeks permission from God to um, put Job under intense suffering as a way of of showing that Job doesn't actually uh, love God. But the, uh, the, the very center of what we're saying here is that the Christian life will be difficult. And I guess it's essential as a Christian you realize this, because... What we're saying really is that the Christian life will involve frustrations. It will involve disappointments. It will involve setbacks um, as, you follow, as you seek to follow Christ. Of course, it just involves the, the reality that we live in a fallen world, that it will involve uh, suffering, pain, even death. It's part of the Christian experience. The New Testament seems to um, describe suffering as, as just absolutely routine part of the Christian life. In James, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's not if you face trials, it's when you face trials. It's just taken for granted that if you seek to follow Christ, you're going to experience trials, difficulties, and, um, and the rest. I'm not suggesting that you need to go and masochistically go and find those trials, go and seek them out. But it's suggesting that that's just something you should expect. The reason I um, highlight this for two reasons. One, some of you aren't Christians. You're looking at the Christian faith, and you look at other kind of worldviews or practices, and people will say to you, if you take this up, all your problems will go away. And that's absolutely not what the New Testament's saying. In fact, quite the opposite. Actually, if you choose to follow Christ, the likelihood is you'll have more problems, not less. Because you add to the the standard problems of life uh, the, the persecution that you might experience or the rejection that you might experience from people as you seek to follow Christ. But it also speaks to sometimes that subtle feeling in us when we experience suffering that kind of says, this shouldn't be happening to me. Maybe you've either said this to God, you said this to some other people. You say, I don't understand why I'm experiencing this suffering. It doesn't feel right. You know, I've, I've sought to follow God. I sought to kind of do the right thing. And yet he's allowing this to happen to me. If you've heard those words or those words have come out of your mouth, then actually what we're trying to do is subtly challenge that expectation and say you've missed the reality that the Christian life is a battle, that it will feel hard, that you'll just face the normal standard challenges of life, the fallen world that we live in, as well as you have one who is seeking to destroy you and undermine your walk with Christ. And Paul has this in view in these verses. The two weapons that we're looking at, or the pieces of armor, should I say, this shield of faith and this helmet of salvation, really those are, those are weapons which are for the very um, most intense form of battles. As the, the fiery darts are coming at you from every direction, these are kind of two protective pieces of armor which are, are kind of designed for the greatest trials that we face. So, of course, this will uh, feel particularly relevant to you if you're going through these kind of trials right now. Um, I suspect it will also, in a sense, I'd wa- I, what I want to encourage you to do is to see that uh, this is relevant to you, even if you're not going through these trials right now. Partly because we're a, a family, there are people who are going through suffering, and we want to encourage and, and counsel our friends who are, who are struggling. But partly because just because you're going through trials right now doesn't mean they're not around the corner. In some way, you want to be prepared. You want to think about this stuff beforehand. Now, what we have to ask yourself, when you look at the nature of what we're facing here, we talk about these trials, and we're talking about this idea of battle, you have to ask yourself, well, what is Paul looking to, for us to do? What is success here? And really, what I think, as you look through this passage, you'll see that success is about endurance. In verse uh, 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. What he's saying here is it's, You might think success is kind of destroying your enemy or something like that. Actually, really what success here is that you stand firm. At the end of the battle, you haven't given up. You haven't given in to the temptations of Satan. You haven't said, look, I've just got too much suffering right now and I just need to kind of throw in the towel. Actually, that success is the fact at the end of the battle that you are still standing. And what we're going to show you is is that these, uh, these two pieces of armor are essential for that kind of endurance. And I think this endurance question is very relevant to us. Uh, Partly, again, it's a bit of a present reality that you may have friends, you may know people who are considering whether or not 
to um, give up following Christ. It's a reality. I, you know, we've got a church of, of X number of people, and I, I can go down the list and point you people who have kind of either wandered off, have given up, have just said, this is too much for me. I just can't, I can't do this. Maybe you know some of those people. Maybe yourself, this might be relevant for you, that you have considered giving up in your walk with Christ. And maybe even I would say it's relevant if you're not a Christian, because I think actually in a way this will show you both how Christians deal with the suffering of life, which is something we all have to uh, reckon with, whatever our worldview, and partly because it also speaks to the very centre of what we call the Christian hope, the hope for humanity. So I hope I want to show you that. So first of all, then, I want to show you why endurance is so essential. Why endurance is so essential. See, Paul, what's not really said here, but is the kind of underlying expectation of the New Testament is that the Christian will keep following Christ until their dying day. The question is not, are you a Christian today? But it's, will you be a Christian in 20, 30, 40, or 50 years' time? Or will you have given up because of it just feels too hard or because different temptations come at you and you say, you know what, I'm just going to go after that. That looks more attractive. The question is not, have you started the race, but will you finish the race well? And actually, I think this whole question of endurance is a, a difficult one for our generation. I think there's a few reasons for that. But I would describe it as something of a lost art of Christian endurance. First reason I think we find this hard is just because we love comfort too much. We live in a world that's relatively comfortable, that we've managed to eliminate much of, our, of the suffering of, of day-to-day life. Think about, compare this generation and where we live now to kind of either globally or historically. And we've managed to eliminate a lot of the suffering, a lot of the, the day-to-day pain that many people have experienced throughout history. And so what that means is that when we go through suffering, it's something of a kind of allergic reaction to that suffering, that we can't, almost like we don't really know how to process it, we don't know how to deal with it. And sometimes if the Christian life feels like it would require a kind of suffering from us, then we just kind of end up relaxing the commands of Christ. We kind of think, well, it can't involve that because that would involve too much suffering because we just, we just don't really experience it and we don't like to experience it. Second reason I think this endurance is hard for us is because we're something of an impatient generation. What I mean by that is that the idea of delayed gratification is not one that sits well with most of us. Um, we we kind of live in an instant society. I don't know if, how many of you, when you've stepped on the tube platform and the time on the train is like more than five minutes, are getting a bit annoyed. That kind of, it's the pace of this city, if nothing else. Or just, you know, you've ordered a takeaway, whatever, and it like says it's going to be here in half an hour, and at 40 minutes it still hasn't arrived. And how many of you are not getting a little bit frustrated at that point? And this is talking 10-minute delay. So you just, just kind of ma- roll that out into our lives. And I just think we'll, we'll see that we, that we don't really deal well with, with, in, with this idea of kind of patience or waiting. Um, endurance is the very opposite of this. Endurance requires patience. Sometimes you'll go through a prolonged period of suffering with no uh, idea of when that suffering will end. I read a story um, which just kind of is, I think you'll find sounds incredible, sounds impossible, I think, to our modern ears. Uh, Carl Olson, in his book Passion, tells a story of an incredible patience amongst one young woman or a group of young women um, from the French Protestants in the 17th century, in the 1600s, in France, a part of the Huguenot movement. Um, so they're, they're Protestants and they're in a Catholic country, and this is what they had to deal with. It says, in the late 17th century in southern France, a girl named Mary Durant was brought before the Catholic authorities, charged with the Huguenot heresy. So she's a Protestant, and she's seeking to, to uh, follow her faith. She says she was 14 years old, bright, attractive, marriageable. She was asked to deny her faith. She was not asked to commit an immoral act, to become a criminal, or even to change the day-to-day quality of her behavior. She was only asked to say jabur, which I think means to deny. Um, There's there's some French speakers here who can can confirm that. Um, She did not comply. Together with 30 other Huguenot women, she was put into a tower by the sea. And for 38 years, she continued. She stayed there. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn, to feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh, the drying and the wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of joints, the slow stupefaction of the senses. To feel all this and to still persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and endure. 
That kind of commitment just sounds absolutely crazy to us, almost impossible. And yet I think this is what endurance looks like. The third reason I think we find this difficult is because we're a kind of low commitment generation, or I suppose more better, a flaky generation. I think most of us recognize this. Um, endurance requires commitment. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who Andrew referenced in his email uh, this week, wrote a book, Discipleship in an Instant Society, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I thought that's such a good picture of what discipleship looks like. But that's not the pattern of how we do life in London. You know, maybe the job's not working out, go and look for a new job. Maybe the friendship's not working out. Maybe you're having a bit, bit of a tough time. Maybe just stop, you just stop texting them. There's a kind of part of the atmosphere of our city is kind of something doesn't work, try something else. And we've got so many options that we've got that kind of ability to, to not really have to dig in and commit to something. And yet this is precisely what endurance requires. Uh, a, this is a kind of popular meme, but I think it sums it up. Um, a couple uh, were asked, why, how have they stayed together for 65 years? And she said, uh, we were born in a time that if something was broken, we would fix it and not throw it away. Now, whilst that, I don't know if anyone actually said that, that does cap- capture something of what is true about our culture. And I think that's why so many of us find this idea of endurance so difficult. It's why that when things are hard, I've, I've seen people just say, you know what, I just can't do this anymore and walk away. And it's, it's such a tragedy when that happens. And actually, the, the challenge is that the New Testament is surprisingly vocal about the idea of endurance. It's a, such an important command in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In the New Testament, you get this picture of the Christian life being like an endurance race, which is about starting, but also about finishing well. Think about the book Pilgrim's Progress, uh, written in the 1600s, but kind of one of the bestsellers of all time, uh, describes the Christian life. And it describes a man who, who becomes a Christian, and then it describes his, this journey to the eternal city. And it basically, he's got different kind of things that come in his way and different distractions. At one point, he might be tempted by this or somebody, he faces a new enemy. But basically, it describes the Christian life as a pilgrimage to the eternal city, to to the heavenly city. And that's a picture of what the Christian life looks like. And really, the implicit message of the book is kind of, will you endure? Will you make it to the heavenly city? Paul's ambition in Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and, min- and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's ambition, to finish his course. Actually, there are warnings as well. In Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The implication is if you don't endure to the end, you don't, he's there's an implicit warning there for that those who don't endure to the end won't be saved. In Hebrews 10, it, just, it has a stark warning. It describes those as w- who shrink back. It says those who shrink back from the faith are destroyed. So it, it's, it's, it's really challenging warnings about those who, who would walk away. So when we look at all of this, we have to say, what is the secret to endurance? How will we endure? How will we continue with Christ to our dying day? And there's two, let's look at these two pieces of armor in turn. First of all, the shield of faith. I want to say from the shield of faith that you have a commander who you can trust. You have a commander who you can trust. That when you understand, when you take up the shield of faith and you know that you have a commander who you can trust, then that will give you the, the grit and resilience to keep on this pilgrimage. The shield of faith that Paul has in mind is kind of a large shield that is almost the size of a door, basically. Um, I'm sure it would either go up to my head, but most people it would go up to your shoulders. Um, but the, the point is that this was a kind of uh, defensive shield, essentially, that you would use it when you were kind of storming a, a, some kind of outpost or castle. Uh, as, the, as the darts were coming at you, as the as, as different missiles you might face, you kind of walk in what's called a, sometimes a tortoise formation. You might have seen that. Um, but essentially, this is a protective shield. Now, the problem is when we talk about the shield of faith, it sounds kind of opaque. And I don't know if any of you have gone through suffering and someone's just said to you something like, you've just got to have faith. And I, can, I don't know if you have heard that, but I think you generally find if someone says that to you, it's deeply unhelpful. It's like, what, 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 do you, uh, what does that mean? What do, we, what do we actually mean when we say that to someone, that you've got to have faith? 
First of all, we've got to define faith. And I don't think that's always obvious. Sometimes we think of faith as kind of equal to basically having religion. You say, well, what my faith is this. So what is faith? Four things it is and four things it isn't. First of all, it's not a general sense of positivity or optimism. It's not a kind of, oh, everything's going to turn out okay. It's a specific conviction that God is faithful to his promises. It's the confidence that God is faithful to specific promises. This means you can't just pluck something out of the air and say, I have faith for this. You have to ask yourself, what are the promises that God has made and, ask, and know that he will be faithful to the promises that he has made to us. And why I raise this is because I know some Christians who've got anger, expressed a kind of anger to me with God, so an anger with God that they've expressed to me, where they feel that he hasn't provided to them what they want. But you have to go back to it and say, well, actually, is this included in what he's promised? You have to ask yourself, what are the specific promises of God? Promises like he'll never lead you, leave you or forsake you. Promises like he'll provide to you what you need, not necessarily what you want. He won't allow you to be, to, be, to be tested or to be tempted more than you can bear. So you have to come back to what are the specific promises of God? Second of all, it's not a kind of an, a primarily or only, should I say, an intellectual assent to the truth of the Christian faith. It is, includes that, no question. But actually, really, faith is much more like trust. And what I mean by trust is trust in the character of God. Trust that he is a good father. Trust that his posture towards you is one of love. Trust that, um, that he has the power to enact his will, that he's willing and able to intervene in the world. Matthew 6, Jesus uh, kind of is comforting his disciples, saying, don't be anxious. And he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, non-believers, seek after these, all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Saying, well, he's, he's unpicking, showing them the, the anatomy of faith really is a confidence in our good Father, a belief and a conviction that God is good and that he loves you, that he cares for you. That is the essence of what it means to trust God. And of course, that means you don't necessarily need to have all the answers. To be able to trust God, and, and when you're going through life and there are things that are going wrong, it doesn't mean you necessarily need to know why everything's happening. Because there's a sense to which, no, I know that he is good. And that speaks to, speaks to my present condition. Third thing is, it's not the absence of anxiety or fear. I think it's true that when you, as you grow in faith that it should start to percolate out into your experience of anxiety. My point is, as you, as you start to trust God, that there should be a lessening of anxiety in your life. However, I don't think it means that those things will never be there. In Psalm 56, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So he's accepting that he has fears. Really, faith is not the, the absence of those things. It's knowing where to take them, knowing where to look when you're experiencing anxieties or fears or doubts or worries. It's a conviction that when you experience those things, you can take them to that your heavenly father. That is what faith looks like. And of course, to do those things, when you're experiencing doubts, anxieties, fears, to actually take them to your father in prayer is in a sense an act of faith. It's an act, it's an act to say, look, I trust you with this. I, I'm struggling. I need your help. So it's not the, anxiety, the absence of anxiety or fear. Finally, it's not only a feeling. Of course, it is a conviction, but that conviction should work its way out in your life. Obedience is the ultimate marker of faith. If you trust him, you'll obey him. And Abraham is the, almost one of the perfect examples of this. He describes this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I won't go through the whole story of Abraham, but what's fascinating there is God has called him to go and do something, to go somewhere. And he has no idea really where he's going. It's an unfamiliar land. It's a, it's a step of faith. What it starts to speak of is that there are that really faith involves that kind of trust. And often faith is expressed in these kind of Abraham moments. What I mean by this is there are times that you look at God's commands, you look at something that God is calling you to, and you, and you say, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand why you would say that, why you would call me to be generous, or why you would say that um, I should only seek to marry someone who follows Christ, or whatever those, whatever those commands are that you just think, I don't understand why you say that to me. In that moment, your choice to obey him is an act of faith. It's a beautiful expression of your faith, saying, I don't understand this, but I'm going to follow you because I trust you. 
And I think it's when you have this kind of faith, a conviction that God is good and that he can be trusted, a conviction that he's faithful to his promises, a conviction that you can take your anxieties to him and you can turn to him when your greatest need, and a conviction that is demonstrated by your life. When you have that sort of faith, then I think you can weather any kind of trial, any kind of suffering, anything that Satan throws at you because you, because you can hang on to, to God. Faith enables you to endure. I think we can see this in a few ways. First of all, faith is the conviction that you have a perfect commander. This is a battle scene. Imagine yourself in a battle scene. The, the bullets are firing, over, firing overhead. It feels like an impossible situation. What's going to sustain you in that moment except being able to look across the battlefield and see that you have a perfect commander who you can trust? Who can tr- you can trust him to lead you out of the battle, who can trust you that he knows that he will not lead you into a place that you can't take effectively, that you won't, that you won't be able to bear. Um, a commander who is able to strengthen you, who's fighting with you, who's empowering, by, empowering you by, your spirit, by his spirit. It's a sense to which that he is with you and that he can be absolutely tr- to be trusted. And my, my wife, is a, uh, Jen, is a practice nurse. Uh, she gives children injections for a living, which obviously is uh, kind of troubling for them. Most of them don't enjoy that. Um, but what is, the, mo- what is the, uh, the, the means by which most of them, almost all of them, then to have their injections? Well, the answer is, is because they're with their mum or dad and because they can look at their parents and they can know that because they're there, they are safe. And that is essentially what we're talking about here, that conviction that because God is there with you in the fight, leading you on, he's your perfect commander, you can carry on the fight. That means whatever happens, you know that he's with you and you don't need to give up. Second of all, it means you know you have riches that can never be plundered. What I mean is, the, uh, it talks about faith as uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Things unseen. What it's saying is that when you see your life with the eyes of faith, if you're a Christian, it's saying whatever you go through, whatever suffering you experience, whatever loss, losses you incur in life, with the eyes of faith, you can see a, a kind of a riches, a wealth, an inheritance in your life that is real, even if those other things have been taken away from you. What I'm talking about is your, your salvation, your adoption, the, the idea that you have a relationship with God, that he's your father. That, when you see that with the eyes of faith, that, that treasury, so to speak, those riches that you have, they, they mean a lot to you in that moment. And it's when you see that with the eyes of faith, you can carry on. Because you're saying, whatever happens to me, whatever suffering I experience, this, my relationship with Christ, cannot be taken away from me. So your faith helps you to see the reality of what you have. And finally, your faith enables you to know that there is purpose in your suffering. When you go through suffering, you, um, if you're not a Christian, if you don't have a, uh, this worldview, then I think... Most of the time, suffering will feel uh, random and meaningless in a sense that the, if you go through suffering, you say, well, why? there's no reason to this suffering. It's just part of the random, I'm coming, talking about coming from a secular worldview, this, kind of, this is just random. And, this is, you know, and, and what, you, what you do then is you just kind of try and move on from it. You just try and forget about it, find something else and just try and um, kind of obscure that suffering in your life. But the Christian worldview is quite different to that. Actually, because when you see with the eyes of faith, when you go through suffering, you can say to yourself, even if, there is, uh, even if Satan is behind this or people are causing my suffering, actually that God can work his good purposes out in this suffering. In um, Genesis, you hear the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, the technicolor dream coat, uh, that guy. Um, he, um, he is, his, his, friend, his brothers seek to try and uh, kill him. Or they, sorry, they, they, they want to kill him. They don't kill him. They send, sell, it, sell him into slavery. Um, they, then he get, finds himself in prison. And he works through a, series, a, num, a lot of suffering, basically. And at the end of his life, he, he meets his brothers. And this is what he says to them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And if you know the story, he's saying, actually, because uh, this chain of events, I ended up being prime minister of Egypt. I ended up having the resources to be able to, um, he gets removed out of prison, works, uh, I won't go through the story, but essentially he has these resources that means he can provide for, uh, send grain to his people and, and means that they're not in famine and, they, and saves lives. And he's saying, look, you guys intended evil, but actually God was working out his good purposes all the time. And it's that kind of attitude that allows us to work through suffering. We may not always know what those purposes are, but we know that, these, that the suffering we're experiencing is under the sovereign hand of a good father who has good purposes for our lives. Often, or sometimes at least, I think we can say that 
those purposes are about our own sanctification, our own uh, growth with God. What I mean by that is you've got to imagine, uh, you picture, you've heard the phrase refiner's fire, like when you put met, uh, kind of iron ore in a, in a smelting furnace, the fire will burn off all the impurities and what you have is kind of pure metal as a result. And it's that kind of idea that as you go through suffering, suffering is kind of often the crucible for your own uh, spiritual growth that this is the place where you grow greatest in your life when you're under intense pressure and suffering. And maybe you'll only be able to see that afterwards. Maybe uh, you may not ever really understand the purposes. But when you see suffering with the eyes of faith, I believe you can go in with a conviction that says, I don't understand this, but I know that you have good purposes that you can work out and you are working through this suffering. And that will enable you to walk through that suffering in a way that I just don't think you can otherwise. So then really, as we take all this together, what we've got to do is take up the shield of faith. And you hear that, that this, is the, this is the means by which you can endure. We have to take up the shield of faith. What does it mean to do that? Well, really, I think it means to apply the truth of who God is and to remember his promises and apply them to every situation. Every trial you face, every time you experience temptation, accusation or whatever, it's to apply the truth of God and his promises to that. Give you an example. This morning I woke up, I was feeling anxious about sermon. I hadn't had a great week of preparation. And the moment I woke up, I just started reminding myself of the promises of who God is and his love for me. And as I, to speak into that anxiety that I was, I was experiencing as I woke up. And I, in moments, I, I felt it going away. So you've got to apply this attitude to every experience in the moment. So that's the shield of faith. Let's talk about the helmet of salvation. Really, when you put on the helmet of salvation, the essence of what Paul's saying here is that you know that your future is assured. And that is the, there's such a wonderful uh, encouragement as you walk through suffering. Let me explain. First of all, what is this? He's talking about a piece of protective armor, a helmet that goes on your head. You've probably all seen it, Roman soldier helmet um, on, on different uh, TV or whatever. Um, what does he mean by salvation? Well, really, I think what he's describing is actually the hope of salvation, the salvation to come. In 1 Thessalonians, this helmet is uh, is described as the helmet of the hope of salvation. He's talking about future hope. Now, some of you, if you're Christians, you'll say, well, hang on a minute, haven't I already received salvation? And yeah, absolutely. If you're a Christian, you know that you've been saved. But it also, there's there's an idea of future salvation, a salvation that you haven't yet received. It's the only salvation that is truly, uh, you receive when Christ has come back. To, um, to save, to judge the, judge the world, but also to make his salvation a reality for all people, to welcome those who've trusted in Christ to spend eternity with God. And the reason I think this is so relevant for us is because I think we experience something of a, a contemporary crisis of hopelessness. We live in a society that has lost most or much or if not all of its sense of hope. There are all sorts of different reasons for that. But I think you can see this in, the, in some of the way we, some of our media, some of our TV, the, the, the rise of, of kind of TV and films which don't have a happy ending. Like, uh, you know, that, that, that shows that we say, that the reason why we can't have a happy ending is because we almost can't deal with the idea of hope. That it's not, that it doesn't feel true to our experience. Yeah, um, see this in our literature. A New York Times book review asked a number of authors, um, what, which... What genres were missing from modern, uh, from, uh, which were underrepresented in contemporary fiction? And one author, Ayana Mathis, uh, said, Today's writers are flummoxed by joy. Instead, they seem to have decided that despair, alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. We are suspicious of the fullness of life. What, he's saying is we what she's saying is we can't cope with, with hope because it doesn't feel true to life. I think this is even the reason why we see an increase in the suicide rate, which sounds a difficult thing to talk about. But um, in the US, they saw a 24% rise between uh, the turn of the century and 2014. And actually in the UK, suicide is the highest killer of men under 50. I think, I think suicide, often you can look at it really as people are literally dying of hope. Uh, Professor Robert Putnam, a sociologist, attributed the rise in suicide rates to a, con- a, a loss, sorry, to a hopelessness, to a sense of hopelessness. It seems plausible. When you're committing suicide, you're saying, this life doesn't offer me anything more. Effectively, there is no hope to this life. I'd rather not continue in this hopeless existence. And yet this is a problem because hope is essential to the human condition. One writer put it this, what we believe about the future controls our experience of the present. We're hope-based creatures. 
Think about when you're, I, I don't imagine this is the experience of many people in the room, but if you're a new parent, those first few months are really challenging. You have barely any sleep and you're just kind of living in a kind of hamster wheel of fe- feeding and trying to grab a few hours of sleep and feeding. It's quite challenging. But what keeps you through, what keeps you going in that experience, this is just me, about us about nine months ago, um, what keeps you going is uh, the set, when, when other parents come up to you and say, it gets better. Don't worry, in a few months' time, you're going to have four hours sleep without interruption. And you're just kind of hanging on in there for that moment. But, but that is it's kind of the idea that we, we rely on hope, on, on people giving us a picture of the future. There's a drummer called uh, Femi Colioso, uh, who's a drummer with the Ezra Collective, and he's the guy on the um, BT Sport, the drummer in the BT Sport adverts uh, for the Champions League. And he, um, he's a Christian, and he grew up in North London, and he was asked um, on, on Radio 5 Live uh, why he didn't get involved in, in gangs growing up. And he said, having a future and a hope changes people's actions. His answer was that actually when he knew that he had a future, that stopped him doing that today. So we rely on this idea of hope. And yet I would argue that the secular worldview provides no um, real answer to this question of hopelessness. Uh, An atheist uh, scientist, uh, Lawrence Krauss, said the picture that science and I think it's science in his interpretation, I think this is, uh, presents us, is uncomfortable. Because what we've learned is we are more insignificant than we could ever have imagined. And in addition, it turns out that the future is miserable. Another writer uh, describes the secular worldview as follows. We are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion and biological survival machines. Wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. If that doesn't fill you with hope, I don't know what will. <laughs> So I think we, we don't really have an answer to this hopelessness from a secular perspective. But I equally think the church has been affected by this ho- sense of hopelessness. We don't really have an idea of this, this eternal hope that we're going to look at. I think there's a few reasons for this. One is just material wealth and comfort that we kind of, our lives today mean that we don't really experience suffering in the way that we have. And, and therefore we don't really feel the need to look for this, this eternal hope, this future hope. Where if you go to maybe other countries or people in a poorer part of the world, you, just, you, you will hear much more of a sense of a focus on this eternal hope. Because they're more familiar with the suffering and pain of life. I think we live in a distracted age. You know, the latest tweet or message or news headline that probably in the grand scheme of things is quite inconsequential just keeps our folk getting our attention such that we lose sight of the bigger narrative of our lives. And which stops us from engaging with the really meaningful questions. And finally, I think often it's just that our view of heaven is too small. You know, when we think of heaven, we think of clouds and harps and Basically, people doing nothing. And it just feels, so I've had people ask me, you know, isn't heaven really boring? And you don't want to say it, but that's kind of what you're thinking when, you're, when you hear all the, or you see these kind of depictions of heaven. It feels irrelevant to modern life. I would argue that when you really understand the heavenly hope, this future hope, when you understand the, the, and this, this future salvation hope, it should change everything. It gives you a, a um, it's the great, it's the, only and greatest antidote to the, to the hopelessness and despair that many of us experience. And you can see this in a few ways. The first one is just suffering will come to an end. Suffering will come to an end. I want to read you this from Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This is describing heaven literally coming down on, a, in our, on earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If you ever experience pain, suffering, sickness, and maybe the death of loved ones, people you know, when you feel that and you feel a sense that there is something deeply wrong about this, you're actually feeling something of the reality. Because what we're saying is that death is not how things are meant to be. It's not how things were made initially. Death comes in, enters in with a fall. And it's not how things will be for all eternity. The one day is coming where there will be no more death no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, that the, the suffering of this world will be over. And I think that this gives you great comfort 
However much suffering, however much you're going through the trials of life right now, you know that those trials are not your ultimate narrative. That they are not the defining feature of your life. Sometimes you experience suffering and it just feels like it's clouding your world, that it's all you're experiencing right now. And at that moment, you need to look kind of through the clouds to the sun poking through and say, actually, no, there's a time when these clouds won't be here, that the sun will come out. Sorry, that's a very trite thing, that the sun will come out tomorrow. No, I'm not saying that. But there's, but there's a sense to which the, the, um, the, 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 the suffering you're experiencing it will not last forever. And I do think that's of great comfort to us as we walk through suffering. Second thing, we will see God face to face. 1 Corinthians. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I, have fully, as I have been fully known. What I'm saying is even if you experience pr- profound intimacy with God in this life, even if you experience God speaking to you, ministering to you, teaching you, you feel like he's your closest friend, praise God, I want that for all of you. Even if, even if that is your experience, there's a sense to which you do not experience the fullness of what it means to know God in this life. That one day you will be face to face with Christ. In the flesh. And what, what, what a day when you meet the one who knows you, who loves you, who's known you since he, cre- he made you. That you have all eternity to get to know him. You know, many of us experience relational longings, a, a sense that, that we're not known and loved in all the ways that we want to. And in a sense, I'd almost say that's almost natural in this life. It's only when you meet with Christ, meet with the one who knows you and has known you for all time, that you will truly experience that that being, being known and knowing that we all long for. Thirdly, the battle will be over. Satan will be utterly defeated and removed from the picture, removed from, from it affecting anyone who follows Christ. What I'm saying is there is great comfort to know the accusations and the temptations that we all experience in this life will one day be over. I know some of you are battling with sin, and when you're battling with sin, sometimes you say to yourself, will this battle ever be over? Will I ever experience, will I experience a day where I wake up and don't want to do what I know that I shouldn't do? And the answer is yes. <laughs> that day is coming that you will, that temptation will be gone. The enemy may loom large on the horizon right now, but as he looms large, it's really important to remember that one day he will die. One day he will have no consequence for your life. And finally, we will be completely transformed. 1 John 3, it says, but we know that when he appears, it's talking about Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him. That sounds almost sacrilegious, doesn't it? That we would be like God. Actually, that you can't even imagine the fullness. You'll still be something of the same person. You know, think about the, how the disciples recognized Jesus after he was resurrected. So in some way, absolutely, you'll still be yourself. But you'll be a totally restored and renewed version of yourself. That all those Things that frustrate you about yourself, the, the ways that inside yourself you have a desire to, I don't know, prove yourself or, or to destroy other people. Or I'm just speaking for myself here. Um, but, you know, fill in the blanks, whatever, yours, whatever your challenges are. <laughs> don't read too much into that. <laughs> Work in progress. Anyway, another, we can just, just debate my sin another time. Um, but my point is, when you feel that frustration with yourself... Know that one day there is a day coming when you will, that will not be a reality. I almost think it's almost impossible to believe, to think there'll be a day when you exist, but there will be no sin in you. That's incredible. Think about full restoration. Think of some of you are carrying wounds, the things from the past, things that have happened to you or things that you've done, and you just can't seem to shake it. And we obviously we want to pray for you and seek to seek restoration and renewal now, but know that one day that all they, those will be gone, that you'll be a new creation. And it's this hope, the hope of transformation, the hope that you will be with Christ, the hope that, uh, that you'll be in a, day, a place with no more suffering, this hope that enables you to endure. Because it's this future hope that outweighs your current suffering. Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Paul's saying that, that what he's experiencing in his life is like light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that awaits him. What's he talking about when he talks about light and momentary affliction? Well, a little bit later on in in 2 Corinthians, he goes on and describes it. It's uh, beatings, being pelted with stones, experiencing constant danger, being attacked by false believers, going without sleep, 
hunger, being imprisoned, and being cut off from his community. So most of us wouldn't use light and momentary afflictions to describe what he's describing there. And the answer is the reason why Paul can describe what are pretty horrendous suffering, the reason why he can describe that as light and momentary affliction is because he's seeing it with the eyes, with the eyes of the future. That compared to what awaits him, to what awaits us, actually this is in some way light and momentary. I think this stops us from, when you're experiencing suffering, sometimes you can just get plunged into it. You can turn in on yourself and it just feels like it's all-encompassing. But you need to remember, when you see the future hope, actually then you can kind of lift your eyes and just say, this is not, this is not even now, this is not the defining feature of my life. This is not the defining um, reality that I'm experiencing. Not saying that suffering doesn't feel hard. Not saying that it won't feel painful. But it, but it doesn't need to overwhelm and overshadow your life. And I think this, even if you're not experiencing suffering, this should change the way you just experience those day-to-day anxieties of life. Because it, what, it's, what I'm saying here is, some of you get really frustrated about really minor things. Some of us get really frustrated about really minor things. You just have to ask yourself, will this matter in the light of eternity? Ask yourself that question when you're getting stressed about something. Will this matter in the light of eternity? And I suspect many of the things that stress us out need not when we consider the eternal future. It should allow you to live a risky and generous life. It should allow you to be able to give yourself away. Sometimes people say, well, if you really focus on heaven this much, then you just, uh, you, you just lose sight of this life and you kind of ignore this life. I think it's completely the opposite. When you know the future that awaits you, it gives you the freedom to be able to give yourself away, to serve others, to lay down your life, to give your whole life, to going to another country, to share the gospel with other people. Whatever it is, it gives you that freedom to give yourself away because you're, li- you're losing something here which is, in a sense, very minor compared to the, the weight of glory that is coming. And finally, I think this should give us a new reminder to prepare ourselves to live in holiness. This whole picture of, 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 of being united with Christ at the end of time, he describes it as like a, a, a wedding banquet, that the bride, the church, is united with her groom, Christ. And, what, and, and that picture is there to help us see that we kind of need to prepare ourselves that we need to get ourselves ready, just as the bride or before her wedding day is preparing herself in all her finery, that as, as the day approaches, he's seeking to live and walk in this kind of holiness, to live, um, to be prepared to meet with, your, uh, with the groom, with Christ. So really this means is that we, we need to put on our helmet. What does that mean? What does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? Well, I think what it means is, to wear it, to acknowledge this future reality. I love the idea, if you put this helmet on and imagine it just, you know, sometimes you put on a hat which is a bit big for you and it just kind of creeps into your eye line and you can kind of see it there. And if you've ever been paintballing, you put on a paintball mask, you can, you can see the mask. It's like it's in your field of vision. It's a bit like that with this, that as you put on the helmet of salvation, actually you, you are, you're not ignoring what's in front of you, but you're seeing it with one eye or one part of your vision on eternity, on this future heavenly hope. And that changes how you see this life. So I think it means that constant reminder of this reality, celebrating it now as we come into a time of worship, we're going to be celebrating this future eternal reality. So let's, as I conclude then, I guess I want to just challenge you to put on this armor in two ways. First, if you're not a Christian, you should know that you can put on this armor today. Put it on for the first time. What it means is to put your faith in Christ, to take up that shield of faith, to say, I trust you, Jesus. First of all, I trust you that you are who you say you are, that you, are, that you can be trusted, that I can, that I can trust you so much that I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to, um, to make you the Lord of my life. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. It also means to, to put on the helmet, you know, to put on this hope. If you're not a Christian, then the hope that I've been describing is not a hope for you that actually you don't have this hope right now. That, and that sounds chilling, it sounds challenging, and we won't, I won't go into any more detail, but know that these, these promises, these, this hope, is for, is for those who put their trust in Christ. But know that it's, that it's as simple as, as receiving that helmet from Christ. It's not that you need to do anything or justify yourself in any way if you're not a Christian. Actually, it's simply receiving this gift of salvation. This hope of salvation is as easy as receiving it and putting it on. As you put your trust in Christ, you receive that salvation. But if you're a Christian here, I think there, there are a few, few responses. First of all, maybe there are some of you who realize you're not walking in faith, that you've allowed anxiety to dominate your life that you're not trusting God, 
you need to look at your commander again. You need to take, remind yourself of where you need to look, what it means to have faith, to look to him in the midst of the battle. Remember his promises. Some of you have switched off from this heavenly reality, of this, this future salvation hope. You've got so focused on what's in front of you. I want to invite you again this evening to put on that helmet of salvation, to remember your future salvation hope, and to keep reminding yourself as you go through life. As we take communion, we celebrate what Christ has done on the cross for us 2,000 years ago, and, as he, and he gave his body and his blood, which means that this hope of salvation is not a kind of maybe, maybe not hope. It's an absolutely unshakable hope because of what Christ has done, that those of you who receive that, receive that gift of salvation, know that this is a guarantee of the future. Or maybe there are just some of you here who are walking through trials right now. And what you need to know is, is that this armor is enough for you, is that you can keep trusting God. You can with the vision of the future, the vision that your commander is there, he's perfect and he's fighting for you, he's leading you, actually you will be able to weather this storm. And maybe you just need to hear the encouragement to keep on standing through the trial. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your shield of faith. We want to thank you that we can put our whole trust in you, that you are utterly trustworthy. We want to um, repent of not trusting you. We want to repent of um, maybe allowing ourselves to get gripped in the anxieties of life. And we want to come to you and lay those anxieties at your feet. We want to come to you and to put these things in your hands and to say we trust you completely. Lord, we thank you for this, this gift, this helmet of salvation, this knowledge that we have a future which is secure in you. And this future is, is just so wonderful, Lord that there'll be a day when there's no more suffering or mourning or crying or pain. There'll be a day where we won't have to struggle with sin and that we will see you face to face. Well, we're so grateful for that reality. Would you help us to, to look to that reality as we walk through life? Help us to look to that reality and to celebrate your gifts to us this evening as we worship you. Help us to celebrate that as we take this bread and wine to remember your sacrifice for us, Lord, that you are our living hope. That any hope we have, any faith, any eternal hope is because of you, Lord Jesus. And we want to worship you and give thanks to you now. Praise you together. Amen. Amen.